Hey, let me introduce you to, if you haven't already noticed, uh, the weird meter. We've talked about the weird meter some. If you've been around Exodus, if you've been around things I've said before, uh, the weird meter, and right now I have it set up on kind of a higher setting, but the weird meter is what that part of you, part of me inside of us, when things are talked about, especially in churches, that have kind of what I, we would just call the weird factor, like, oh, come on, is that really true? Um, kind of, you know, we're not going to pull out the rattlesnakes or things like that, but some of the things that even happen in the Bible have a weird meter on high kind of setting, because we're, we're going to look at one of those today. So the weird meter is, w- th- and so I'm just giving you a weird meter alert. Something, we're going to be reading about a story in the Bible today that's going to, that'll challenge your thinking, and it challenges my, it still challenges my thinking when I read some of these things. Because the basis, the basis behind the weird meter, go to the next slide, is uh, one of the statements we make at Exodus, the invisible world is just as real as the visible. We believe there's a world right now that we can't see, but it exists. There's a visible world, you know, it's a gym floor, plastic chairs, we breathe air, we swallow water, those kind of things. But there's an invisible world that we're living in simultaneously right now, and it's real. It's just as real as what you feel, what you, what you drink, what you see. So to look at that today, we're going to look at a passage uh, in the Old Testament book of Job. So if you have a Bible, I may want to turn there, but it's an Old Testament book. It's one of the oldest books in terms of when it was written. And uh, let me just back up for a second, too. What I've done the last few weeks is just doing some overview themes of the Bible that have, ha- that have an impact on how we think about things in Exodus. I'll do one more next week, and then following that, we'll start a new series. But we're going to look at... Um, the book of Job, and let me just, I'm just going to read to start off the book, and I want you to uh, listen as I'm reading, or if you have your Bibles, you may want to follow along, and we're going to uh, encounter some things, I think, that will challenge your thinking as it always challenges mine, all right? So let me just, you just follow along, and you might have to even kind of visualize what I'm reading, because it's, it's inter- interesting from the get-go. Uh, there was once a man named Job who lived in the land of Uz, not Oz, Uz, U-Z. He was blameless, a man of complete integrity. He feared God and stayed away from evil. So right now, this guy's like an all-star spiritual person, right? He had seven sons and three daughters. He owned 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 teams of oxen, 500 female donkeys, and employed many servants. He was, in fact the richest person in that entire area. So not only is he a blameless man, integrity, good in all ways, but he's very wealthy. Job's sons would take turns preparing feasts in their homes, and they would also invite their three sisters to celebrate with them. When these celebrations ended, sometimes after several days, Job would purify his children. He would get up early in the morning and offer a burnt offering for each of them. For Job said to himself, perhaps my children have sinned and have cursed God in their hearts. This was Job's regular practice. So right away, you're just telling us up front, Job's like a really good man, a really wealthy man. He loves his kids. He does things. He does as much as he knows how how to do things right, right? That's not too weird at this point. Here's where it gets interesting, at least I always think it does. One day, the members of the heavenly court came to present themselves before the Lord, and the accuser, Satan, came with them. And I have no idea what that looks like but it's telling us something's going on backstage here. Somewhere in the heavenly court, there's a gathering, and somehow Satan comes with them. Let me just step back for a second here, too. The Bible says that Satan was at one time an angel, like the primary angel, the right-hand angel. They call the archangel. And the Bible says that he, because of his own pride, decided to do things his way, and uh, was cast out of heaven. Now, right away, you might be thinking that sounds like, you know, superheroes or Greek mythology. But the Bible talks about it. Jesus talks about it. So if Jesus believed it was true, then we believe it's true. It may stretch your, it may stretch you a little bit. It may stretch your thinking. It may be on the weird meter. But we believe there's an invisible world. We believe there's a power that's opposed to God. And that's what the Bible talks about. So we're not like, you know, ooh, we're not like thinking about Satan's behind every kind of tree we walk by or if you have a car accident, it's Satan's fault. 
but we do believe there is a power in the world that's opposing to God. All right. So that's that's what's happening here. Um, the, the accuser, Satan, came with them. And then God asked Satan, it says, where have you come from? The Lord asked Satan. So it's this conversation, again, happening, what I just call backstage, you know, behind the curtain. Satan answered the Lord, I have been patrolling the earth, watching everything that's going on. Then the Lord asked Satan, have you considered my servant Job? He's the finest man in all the earth. He's blameless, a man of complete integrity. He fears God and stays away from evil. Satan replied to the Lord, yes, but Job has good reason to fear God. You've always put a wall of protection around him in his home and his property. You've made him prosper in everything he does. Look how rich he is. But reach out and take everything away he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. So here's the conversation. God says to Satan, okay, see Job? Job's the man. Job's proof of my goodness to humanity. Job's a good man. And Satan's response is, well, yeah, the only reason Job loves you, God, is because you've given him a posh life. If things went bad for him, Satan says, he'll curse you to your face. He'll, he'll, he'll walk away from you. So Satan's like, and just think about your own life. To what degree do you love God to the degree that God's been good to you? So that's what Satan, that's, that's the, the conversation here. Yeah, Job's only, he only goes to church on Sunday, God, because he has a nice house and cars. If he had anything go wrong in his life, he'd probably stop going to church. That's the kind of conversation that's happening here. And then God says this. All right, you may test him, the Lord said to Satan. Do whatever you want with everything he possesses, but don't harm him physically. So Satan left the Lord's presence. What's that about? Why in the world is God telling Satan, you can have at him. You can go after him. Like, I'm going to prove to you that Job just loves him because he loves me, not because of what I do for him. So that kind of raised a whole host of questions like, well, okay, God, you're, you're kind of giving Satan free reign in Job's life. Except God said you can't touch him physically. It's still, I mean, if that was me, if you and I were Job, we still wouldn't feel good about that, that agreement that just happened in heaven. So one day when Job's sons and daughters were fearing the oldest brother, were feasting at the oldest brother's house, a messenger arrived at Job's home with this news. Your oxen were plowing with the donkeys feeding beside them when the Sabian raided us. The Sabians raided us. Sabians were a neighboring country. They stole all the animals and killed all the farmhands. I'm the only one who escaped to tell you. All right bad news number one while he was still speaking another messenger arrived with this news the fire of god has fallen from heaven and burned up your sheep and all the shepherds i'm the only one who escaped to tell you and this bad news number two while he was still speaking a third messenger arrived with this news three bands of chaldean raiders have stolen your camels and killed your servants i'm the only one who escaped to tell you all right bad news number three just just stop for a second and think about how you respond to bad news in your life, financial, relational, whatever, and how that affects how you think about God. If you're like me, you start asking questions like, God, what's up with that? What did I do? Right? So put yourself in Job's shoes a little bit and think about your own experience when things happen, when bad things happen to good people kind of thing. It's not done yet. While he was still speaking, another messenger arrived with this news. Your sons and daughters were feasting in their oldest brother's home. Suddenly a powerful wind swept from the wilderness and hit the house on all sides. The house collapsed. All your children are dead. I'm the only one who escaped to tell you. All right, bad news number four is pretty traumatic. I've been around parents who've lost children in premature deaths. And... It's legitimate to start asking all kinds of questions of God, like, what's going on? What's that about? Job stood up and tore his robe in grief. Then he shaved his head and fell to the ground to worship. And he said, I came naked from my mother's womb, and I will be naked when I leave. The Lord gave me what I had, and the Lord has taken it away. Praise the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin by blaming God. Then chapter 2, and I'll just do this briefly, chapter 2 starts out the same way. 
One day the members of heavenly court came again to present themselves before the Lord, and the accuser Satan came with them. Where have you come from, the Lord asked Satan. Kind of similar conversation. Satan answered the Lord, I have been patrolling the earth, watching everything that's going on. Then the Lord asked Satan, have you noticed my servant Job? So Job's a topic of conversation again. Finest man on the earth, he's blameless, full of integrity, fears God, shuns evil. Even though, and he's maintained his integrity, even though you have urged me to harm him without cause. Satan replied to the Lord, skin for skin. A man will give up everything he has to save his life, but reach out and take away his health, and he will surely curse you to his face. So now Satan's saying, okay, okay, yeah, Job still says praise in the name of the Lord. Took away his money, his wealth, even caused his children to die. But now Satan's saying, I'll get him to curse you if you give me his body. Let me go after his health. And God, again, raising all kinds of questions with us, is like, sure, go ahead. You, got every, you can do anything you want to to Job. So then what happens is uh, Satan left the Lord's presence, and he struck Job with terrible boils from head to foot. Job scraped his skin with a piece of broken pottery as he sat among the ashes. His wife said to him, are you still trying to maintain your integrity? Curse God and die. Job's wife is basically saying, Job, God's not doing you right anymore. Put your middle finger up in God's face and walk away. All right. All the thing has happened to you. If you were being a good person, why didn't God protect you? God's holding out on you is what his wife's really saying. God's holding out on you. But Job replied, you talk like a foolish woman. Should we accept only good things from the hand of the Lord and never anything bad? So in all this, Job said nothing wrong. So the whole book continues. You can look at the book yourself to see how it ends. It ends in a way where Job is vindicated in an incredible way. But it goes on for like chapters and chapters of all kinds of questions that Job asks, that his friends ask. Because what's happening here defies something that we as Christians, and I would say especially as American Christians, we believe needs to be true. Now go to the next slide here. Here's a couple formulas I want you to think about. All right. We love, I mean, I was a math teacher, so I always got to put math up here occasionally just to cause some of you, your anxieties to rise all over again from your math classes. We know that 2 plus 2 equals 4. We know that in a right triangle, A, plus a squared plus B squared equals C squared if A and B are the legs of the right triangle. We, we like things to have a formulaic kind of feeling. Here's another formula we tend to believe is true. Be good, believe in God, and all will be well. If I'm a good person, if I'm nice to people, nice to the poor, I give money to the church, kind to people, I try to forgive as much as I can. If I'm a good person and I believe in God, if I do those two things, my life should go good. We don't say it that way. Most of us, you wouldn't even write it down that way. But let's be honest, we tend to think that way. Because what happens then is if life isn't well, if all is not well, and I've seen this in my own life and a lot of people, we back up a few steps and we start assuming one of two things uh, must be true. Either I'm not good, I've done something wrong. I mean, just recently I heard a friend of mine say, I don't know what I've done to deserve, I don't know what I've done to deserve what's happening to me. Maybe I'm not, this is actually what they said, maybe I haven't been praying enough or reading my Bible enough. Maybe I'm not grateful enough. And it's always good to express, you know, figure out and let God search you. Maybe there's some issue in your life. There, maybe there, sometimes there is a legitimate issue going on. There are stories in the Bible where legitimately people have unconfessed, known sins they don't want to deal with, and God lets them have the consequences of their sin. That's one category. We're not talking about that with Job. The Bible says he was complete integrity. So like this friend of mine, when I'm talking to them and they say to me, I don't know what I've done wrong. So the assumption is, and they were having a, some kind of a significant health problem. The assumption was, if I'm having a problem, if I'm losing money or have a health problem, or my boyfriend or girl breaks up with me or my husband or wife divorced me or my kid, then something must either, A, I must be doing something wrong, 
And a lot of times we go there and try to figure out what did I do to deserve this? I need to work harder to impress God. Or B, if it's not me, option A, I'm blowing it. Or B, God is holding out on me. We think it has to be one of those two things. Either A, I'm blowing it. I'm doing something wrong. I've got to figure out. I've got to fix something. Or B, God's holding out on me. Because if I'm a good person and I believe in God, if all's not well, then somehow God is messing up. God's holding out on me. That was the original lie that Satan fed the Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. They said, he said, God, God doesn't really mean that. He, he, doesn't, he doesn't want to give you all the good things, so go ahead and eat the apple. Because the lie was God's holding out on you. He's holding back something from you. My guess is you may not have thought about it that way, but we all have those thoughts when things don't go well. Either we're not doing something right or God's not doing something right. We tend to have one of those two conclusions. I think this story from the book of Job, and it's attested through other parts of Scripture, actually puts together another option, a third option, a third factor that's a really big part of the equation. Let's go to this next slide here, and that's that you have an enemy. Now, you might think, oh, come on, this is, what, this is where it gets kind of weird, kind of fairy tale-ish. But think about it for a second about some of the great stories and great movies we love. You know, Sauron is the great arch enemy of Lord of the Rings. The White Witch in the story of Narnia. The Joker is the Batman. And there's all kinds of other stories that have a great villain in it. That we love those stories. There's a hero who has some kind of a mission. There's a villain that gets in the way. Maybe those stories resonate with us because deep down inside we know that's our story. Maybe those stories resonate with human nature. I mean, some of those stories are the greatest stories we love. It's because maybe we know that intuitively that we have a mission in life, we have a goal that God wants us to become, and we know there's something in the way. There's something opposing us. And again, somebody said this recently, well, how do we know that maybe the Bible's saying all this because in those days... They just attributed all bad things to Satan, and maybe that really was misunderstanding. And now that we have more rationalistic thinking and we're smarter, we know those isn't that way. Well, I go back to always this. Jesus talked about Satan as if he were a real being. Jesus talked about Satan as if he was a real opponent to anything God wanted to do good in your life and my life. So if Jesus believed it, and if Jesus was sent from God and he was God incarnate, Jesus can't be fooled. In that sense. So like I said before, Satan is, the Bible says, Satan is this high angelic being that was fallen from heaven and becomes the enemy not only of God, but of God's people. And if you think about one of the issues in the Bible of things happening, is whenever God began to do something that was redemptive, opposition kind of came in the way. And the statement I've made is, any movement toward freedom of life is always opposed. Moses was going to be the one who led God's people to freedom out of Egypt. What happens at the very beginning? All of a sudden, Pharaoh uh, wants to try to kill all these Hebrew baby boys, of which Moses was going to be one. From the very beginning, Moses' life was threatened. Well, you think about when Jesus was born. What happens in that time? The ruler, this Herod, he wants to kill all the baby boys. In the book of Revelation, it even talks about, it gives us a, a picture of what happened. It talks about this dragon that was about ready to devour a baby delivered from this one woman. So the picture is Jesus being born, and the dragon was there waiting to devour the offspring of the woman. Because every time God's about to do something that's freeing for you or for me or life-giving for you or for me, if Satan is real, which we believe he is, do you think that perhaps he's opposed to that? The Bible says he's the, that Satan steals, kills, and destroys, but maybe we should actually start believing that Satan steals, kills, and destroys. Because if God wants for your life and my life fullness of joy, fullness of forgiveness, 
fullness of life, patience, and peace, it would make sense that Satan would not want those things. And again, even as I'm hearing myself say this, it's, it's like, really? Is that really how reality is? Because I haven't seen Satan, you know, those kind of things. But again, it's either A plus B equals C, either God's holding out, you're blowing it, or there's something else going on here with some of the hardships we encounter in life. Uh, Jesus talks about Satan. First, uh, in the New Testament says Satan prowls around looking for somebody to devour. That's Peter writing that. And again, we're like, well, that's pretty dramatic language. Peter had been a follower of Jesus for years when he wrote that down. Peter was a fisherman. He wasn't like a philosopher, but he's like, there's something going on here. Jesus talks about Satan as a murderer and a liar, and the New Testament is full of of conversation about Satan. But one statement, I want to go to the next slide here. This is one time where Jesus talks, and this reminds me of Job, the story of Job, because really at the end of the book of Job, Job is tested, and God kind of holds Job up to the trophy. But in the New Testament, Simon, who is unnamed for Peter, this is Peter the fisherman, Peter kind of the loud mouth, Peter the impulsive. Um, but he was Peter the one who followed Jesus among the other disciples as well. Jesus said this to Peter one time, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for you. So sifting is wheat. When you sift is wheat, what that meant was you're sifting the wheat because you want all the chaff, all the stuff that's not wheat to fall away. So again, don't understand exactly how this works, but Satan wants to sift Peter like wheat. Notice Jesus didn't say, I stop Satan from doing that. That's what we'd love to hear. We'd love to hear Jesus say, Satan asked to sift you like wheat. And I said, no way, Satan. That's what we want Jesus to say. But he says, no, I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. So he's saying, Satan, is want, you're going to be sifted, Peter. All this stuff in you that, that does not lead to goodness in life is going to be sifted out. And I'm praying for you, Peter. Now let's get closer to home here. Go to the next slide here. Because all I did was take out the name, and I'm going to ask you to envision your name in that those blanks. Because if Satan goes after Job, Satan goes after Peter, the sense of the teaching of the Bible is every one of us are in his crosshairs. Now please hear me. I'm not saying we're phobic, we're fearful, we're going to be, woo, there's every time my, you know, Every time I break a fingernail, Satan's behind that. Or every time I stub my toe, that's not what we're saying. But what I believe the Bible does say is every time you make a movement toward freedom or life, every time you try to shake, maybe you're trying to shake a a pattern of sin in your life. Maybe you're trying to move toward some issue in your life toward more health relationally in your marriage. Maybe you're moving toward something more healthy relationally and and some friendships. Maybe you're moving toward more of a life where you want to listen to God. I guarantee you, you do that, you take those steps, and it, you will hit opposition. And again, it's easy to kind of assume what's going on there, but I, I, the example I gave one time, this is a true story. My wife and I decided to give some money to somebody or give more to, it was a church, or I can't remember what, it was a mission or something that was a big, big stretch for us to give money to. So made the commitment to do that. Within the next couple of days, our water, our water heater went out. Now, do I believe that Satan was down there toying with our water heater? No. Probably, I don't know. But I do know what happened inside of me. I started, oh, maybe we can back off of that financial commitment to help that person out because now we have a problem. So whether, however or not what was going on in the individual world, how that even happened, it seemed kind of ironic to me the moment I make a commitment then something else is challenging. There's times in my marriage, the moment I make a thought or a commitment, I'm going to, Kathy and I, we need to talk about this issue, you know, a hard issue or whatever. Start to think about talking about it, and then something else happens in our relationship that distracts that. I don't know. I, don't, I just don't think they're all coincidences. So don't, 
don't think, and then what happens is, oh, now I'm, I'm going to quit. I'm going to go back. I'm not going to, I'm not going to go, no more financial commitments, no more commitments to help improve my relationships because I don't like the obstacles. But the passage from what Jesus says to Peter is that he prays for us. He's for us. You're not alone. So who's to say that right now? We don't know. Jesus could be saying to Daniel in front here, Daniel, Daniel, Satan's asked to sift you like wheat. But I'm praying for you. Again, I'm, I'm not saying that every one of your difficulties in life is Satan-induced. But m- there is more going on than what's in, there's way more going on than what you and I see. There's much more going on backstage than what you understand, than what I understand. Now, that doesn't lead us to be in fear. It leads us to realize that Jesus is for us. He's not against us. And the Bible said he intercedes for us all the time. I mean, there's, and so you think practically speaking, there's times where, even just this last week, there was a time when my wife and I were, um, we both felt a heaviness about something. We won't, I won't tell what it was about. We both felt this heaviness about something that seemed to be ir- a little irrational. Like, yeah, it was something we should be concerned about, but we felt heavy about it. And then my wife said she just felt like this is not always her. She's not like a music person. She said she felt like she needed to put on some worship music in the house just to listen to and sing along. And she said kind of the heaviness lifted for her because she thought there's something else going on and if I can focus myself on Jesus, it's not magic. I'm not saying play the music louder and your bad feelings will go away. But it was more of her turning her heart and her thoughts toward Jesus because Jesus is the one who says he fights for us. And there's been times I've actually whispered out loud as I'm laying in bed heavy with anxiety about something. Okay, Jesus, you gotta, you got to fight from here because I don't know what else to do. You're not alone. Um, we're not called to be passive. We're called to times in scripture we're told to stand firm even when it talks about satan you know we don't battle against flesh and blood ephesians paul tells the ephesians we don't battle against flesh and blood we don't we battle against rulers and principalities in the high places paul is saying your struggles in life ultimately aren't with other beings your parents aren't the enemy. Your spouse isn't the, anim- isn't the enemy. Republicans are not the enemy. Democrats are not the enemy. ISIS is not the enemy. Ultimately, the enemy of your soul is an invisible being called Satan. And Paul says that's, that's what we battle against. And then he says stand firm. And part of standing firm is an awareness of what Jesus does for us and, and, a, and a confidence that Jesus is going to win on your behalf. So I don't know what you're going through. I don't know what big things, small things, big trauma, small trauma. But I do know even if Satan didn't cause it, he knows how to use it against you or against God. I'm blowing it or God's holding out. Those are two lies we easily believe. And I would just challenge you not to go to those, not to go there and consider whether there's something else going on that Jesus wants to fight for you with. So let's pray and then we'll uh, take communion this morning. God, we don't understand, and sometimes we even react against the fact that you would allow, why you allow kind of the proverbial bad things to happen to good people, especially if we're one of those good people. Of course, none of us here would claim to be perfect. Of course, none of us here would say that we're good in all ways, but when bad things happen to us, when disappointing things happen to us, when frustrating things come into our lives, would you protect us from the lie of believing in any way that you're holding out on us, that you don't have our best interests in mind? And would you protect us from the lie that we must be blowing it, that we're the, we're the mistake? But God, would you help us to focus our eyes on uh, Jesus? Um, scripture says that the Lord is a warrior. Help us to focus on what you do for us.
that you, as the scripture said, we would resist Satan and stand firm. That's the kind of people we want to be. We want to be people who are full of strength and focus uh, because of what Jesus does for us. And we ask this all in his name. Amen. Uh, we finish every Sunday at Exodus with communion. And uh, we do it because the center of what we do at Exodus isn't the singing, it's not the sermon. The center of what we do is reality. It's about Jesus. Because Christianity at its core is not a moral religion or a philosophical religion. It's a supernatural religion. It's a supernatural reality. We believe something else goes on. Yeah, we talked about the invisible world and Satan, and, but the also we also believe that there's in the invisible world there is the spirit of Jesus that because of what Jesus did on the cross opens up a way for us to embody the spirit of Jesus in us. So Jesus said when he, when he served the disciples the Last Supper, it was part of the Passover feast, but he said, now this is my body and my blood given and shed for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And then he said, whenever you eat this and whenever you drink this, you're proclaiming something to yourself, to others, but ultimately you are opening yourself up to the reality of me inside of you. So it, it is just bread and juice. It's nothing more than that, but something more than that goes on when you open up yourselves to uh, receiving Jesus inside of you in that sense. Anybody's welcome to take this. We don't, we don't, uh, you're not restricted to be a part of this church or whatever, but the only uh, caution I give is the Bible says if you have some kind of known resistance to God, you're resisting God in a, in a way that you know it's for your own well-being that you don't take. But for everybody else who's pursuing Jesus but yet is broken and falls down and gets up again, this is for all of us because it's the promise of Jesus to have more of him inside of us. So let's pray, and then the band will come up and lead us in a few more songs, and then we'll take. Jesus... Um, we're grateful that you opened up this, what the Bible calls this new and living way through your death and your resurrection. And thank you that you allow us to be those kind of people. And um, we're grateful, and we take this out of gratitude. We ask this all in your name. Amen. Uh, the band's going to play, and just as, as we do it here, just come on up whenever you feel, whenever you want to come. Even during the singing, we come up. Uh, they'll offer you the bread, tear off a piece. They offer you the cup, and how we did here, you dip it in the cup, and then most people eat it right away. Some people take it back to their seat, but that's just how we do it here. So you're welcome uh, to the table of Jesus. Thank you for loving me. Thank you for Thank you for saying
saving me thank you for saving me thank you for saving me thank you for saving me Jesus thank you for loving us, pursuing us, uh, forgiving for us, and in light of even what we talked about today, thank you for fighting for us. Thank you for praying for us. And so now I pray for each one of us here this morning, God, that you would give us peace, but also a sense of resolve. And what Paul said is to stand firm. And to not be swayed by the ways in which um, we feel accosted or accused or discouraged or defeated. Because we know your promise, Jesus, is that you don't leave us or ever forsake us. And we love you, Jesus, and we ask this all in your name. Amen. Hey, help us out with the chairs. We stack them in the back there. Also, if you're a college student and you maybe want to come to the pizza lunch next week, make sure you sign up back there so we have a good count. Thank you.